0: Welcome to 30 Minutes from 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. This week we continue with a session from the 2019 Tucson Festival of Books, curated by Pima County Public Library's Nuestras Rices program. This session was entitled, What Color is the Future? Award winning Latinx sci fi fantasy writers Lillian Rivera and Danielle Jose Oder. Merge urban dreams with a dystopian world order. Librarian John Munoz moderated the panel. Nuestras Risis, or Our Roots, is a group of Pima County Public Library staff members who work together to celebrate and honor the culture, voice, and linguistic heritage of our Latinx and Spanish-speaking communities in Pima County. This is part one of a two-part series. Up first, John Munoz, introduced the authors.
1: Welcome. Welcome to all of you to the 11th Annual Tucson Festival of Books and the Nuestras Raices venue. My name is John Munoz, Senior Librarian with the Pima County Public Library, your public library here in southern Arizona. Today's program is What Color is the Future? Thanks to the Pima County Public Library for sponsoring this venue. She's an award winning writer and the author of the young adult novels Dealing in Dreams and The Education of Margot Sanchez. Her work has appeared in L. Lenny Letter, Tin House, Fantasy and Science Fiction Magazine, and the LA Times, just to name a few. She is Liliane Rivera. <laughs> And he's got a thing for monsters, historical, rhetorical, allegorical, and metaphorical. His debut Shadow Shaper series for young adults has earned rave reviews. The International Latino Book Award, New York Times Notable Book, the NPR Best Books of the Year picks, among other accolades. Like many professional writers, he has paid his dues by working a tough guy job, namely EMT in NYC. So a paramedic in New York City for one decade. Wow. Thank you for your service, by the way. My pleasure. <laughs> we will talk more about that in a moment. <laughs> he is Daniel Jose Older. Thank you. How do you write for the opposite sex, Lilian? the I mean, I uh, think, male characters?
2: I mean, I, you know, I grew up with a lot of brothers, but also it's just, it really is about listening and um, what Daniel said. Um, and also not taking anything for granted because, you know, yes, I'm from the Bronx. I grew up there, but even when I was writing the education of Margo Sanchez, I had to make sure that I was getting everything right. Like, I had to do my research. I had to make sure streets were correct. I, I was... Asking specific slang, using specific slang words that are from New York, New Rican, Puerto Rican, you know, I had to make sure I was getting that right. Okay. So, I mean, even in like in dealing in dreams, even though it's set in the near future, like even if I'm creating a world, I there's certain things that I have to just make sure that I'm that it all makes sense. Right. Um I try not to take anything for granted. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not an expert. Like, I I don't know. I feel like I'm open to learn to everything, Mm -hmm, you know? mm -hmm. So for each project, it really is like a learning experience. Um, I go in, like, excited to learn something Mm -hmm. new.
1: Daniel Jose, your approach to setting? Um, We talk a lot about, like,
3: place as character. And that's cool, and I love it when people say Brooklyn feels like a character in my books. It's also a cliche, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but I also am like, how do we push past that even, you know? So for me, I try to, and as a challenge to myself, I try to think of setting also as conflict, because um, I don't think we talk about that enough. And back to the gentrification idea, you know, just places are always in a state of crisis on one level or another in terms of change, right, turning points. Everywhere is in a turning point of some kind. There's no place that's static. And people act like there are, you know, like, small towns. Mm. People always talk about Havana like it's, like, trapped in time. And, like, it's really not. Like, they just have old cars. (laughs) Like, that's different. You know what I mean? that doesn't mean they're trapped in time. Like, in fact, Havana is one of the places more than anywhere else where I feel most, like, the all the different little fluctuations of politics and global politics affect everyday life on the street in a way that you don't feel in a lot of places. But the point is, it's always in flux, and, and the more that we can tap into that dynamic aspect of, of um, place, I think the more alive places feel.
0: An audience member asked writers Lillian Rivera and Danielle Jose Oder if they considered climate change in their work.
3: Uh, Yeah, I think we're both definitely thinking about it because we exist today (laughs) and we have to be. Um, And and thank goodness it's in the news more. Um, The book that I... I do have a book specifically about climate change and it hasn't come out yet, but it's called Flood City. And it's about the last city on Earth after the floods have taken over. And the people that caused the floods, who are a group called the Chemical Marins, went up into space because they knew the floods were coming. And now they're coming back and trying to reclaim the last city. And a bunch of kids have to stop them. Um, so that, that comes out in like 2021. Mm-hmm. Hopefully the world will still exist then. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I mean, I feel with dealing in dreams, um, it has it has a little bit more of that of climate change. Um, the world is set; it's set in the near future. In this fu- future, women are the only one allowed to have any say of what goes on, and that's because the men messed up the world. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, but not everything is um, not. It's, there's no easy answers. That's, that's what I would like to say about that. So even if it's all um, women run, you know, so it's not. So for Nala, who's grown up in that world, she's only known violence and she's only known herself as being um, powerful. So and she's hadn't had anyone question that until mm. she goes into this journey that she, she makes. So we do talk about that in, in the book that I'm doing, Dealing in Dreams.
1: Mm. How has your ethnicity defined you and shaped you into <laughs> the author and artist that you are, Daniel you Jose see? Older?
3: I have no idea how to answer that question. That's an interesting question. I mean, it's 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 like it's just a it's like it's like saying like, what has my arm done for me? I pick up things with it. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it's like um, it's just something I know to be true, so I move accordingly. Um, yes. But I, I do think it's a process to get there because um, we're kind of taught not to love that part of ourselves so it's almost like finding out you have a third arm instead (laughs) oh oh that let me use that you know like you know not that's kind of putting it too strongly but i do think like uh, most latinos in the united states have to go through a process of of rediscovery Mm -hmm. of ourselves because we've been um and this is something i wrote about recently in time um is like you know just looking out into the world even in a very like Um, pro-us household Mm -hmm. still having to look out into the world and see that the world wasn't pro-us and and then dealing with that as a kid and how we've internalized that and then kind of coming back around as an older kid and what did that mean Um, so I do think it's been a process that we all have to grow into and and I would say that a lot of us I think write that process into our stories Um, so for me it was Sierra. You know discovering that she had this whole legacy of magic part of her family that had been denied to her because of the patriarchy of her abuelo and, and her form her form of reclamation for that mm-hmm. so I think it's in there mm-hmm. Lilian
1: um,
2: I don't know I, I joked about this the other day like someone's like, what do you like in a panel I'm like Puerto Rican Puerto Rican, Bronx Bronx Puerto Rican <laughs> like that's how I go into a room that's how I that's how I represent but this is something like you were mentioning like it's it was a process you know because um there might have been a moment when I was in college when I was like, No, I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna be Puerto Rican because I have to assimilate for whatever reasons. Or but I come from a family that's very hardcore Latino Puerto Rican down, you know. So it, I think everyone goes through that. How how do we navigate this world? You know, what's gonna what do we use as our weapons? I don't know. Like, for me, it's writing. You know, for me, it's writing and trying to find find ways of writing about vo- people who don't have their voice, who don't have a voice, yeah. right? And that's 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 the way I approach my own writing. I,
3: you know? I, to to pick off that too, I do think like I've, one thing I've noticed about Dactyl Hill Squad, which is the series I, I write, where um, it's the Civil War, but there's dinosaurs running around obviously um, (laughs) is that that a lot of that book which i learned writing it the series rather is about um a conversation with ourselves about anger Mm -hmm. and and to come back to your question about what conversations we would have with young latinas is that we really as a society have a lot of work to do in terms of honoring our own anger Mm -hmm. and and allowing it to exist um because i think we suppress it at the risk of letting it become the whole thing and, and that's, like, where we're at a lot about the conversation is people being like, just calm down, everybody, you know, don't come from such an emotional place, you know, mm-hmm. that very... Um, condescending and patriarchal kind of response to anybody having an emotion at all. Yeah. Um, anger is extremely important. It can't be everything, but it, it's never going to be nothing. Mm-hmm. A- and in order for it not to be everything, we have to honor it and give it its place in this conversation, um, particularly when so many of us come from, from so much historical trauma and, and what, what we've lived through and what our parents have lived through. So a lot of the conversations that we have to have, I think, in literature and with each other are about that and saying, like, you know, honoring our anger. Our our sorrow, our grieving, our trauma, and our joy, mm-hmm. and being able to have moments of joy amidst that, and, and what does the struggle look like if we allow all of those things into the room?
2: I mean, mm. I, I love that, because that's, I feel like with dealing in dreams, that's all it is about right. anger, is. and yeah. hate, and violence, and, and how to deal with the trauma, and how, where that came from, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah
3: that's one of the things i love about that book thank you
2: (laughs) that was really awesome Uh,
1: you just mentioned dactyl hill squad so that is a civil war historical fiction but it's on an alternate earth one in which the dinosaurs never went extinct so regiments of the line from north and south of course are writing triceratops into battle against each other it's a it's a novel for children and uh, question liliam you haven't written anything for children do you think you ever would
2: Oh, like younger children? Yeah, they,
1: not not why oh. young kids. Right. You
2: know? <laughs> I'm like children. Why they're young? Um, I am. I mean, I'm 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 doing. Um, I'm trying to finish a middle grade project. You know, which I can't talk about. But yeah, it's it's a totally different thing, and it has a lot more joy <laughs> than it doesn't have as much angst. Right.
0: You are listening to a session from the 2019 Tucson Festival of Books curated by Pima County Public Library's Nuestras Raises program entitled, What Color is the Future? Award-winning Latinx sci-fi fantasy writers Lillian Rivera and Danielle Jose Older discuss their work with librarian John Munoz. An audience member said that mainstream culture tends to lump all Latinos together as one culture, so how did the authors address the complexity of every single Latino culture in their work?
3: We don't. <laughs> you don't. I mean, we don't do every single one, right. of course. No, but I, for me, the answer is like, that's very true. I think that's true across the board of people of color in general. Is like, mm-hmm. it just becomes like this one, you know, one lump thing, which is weird. Um, and one so, experience only. Yeah, one experience, yeah. one character from one place, you know, the one token, whatever. Yeah. And so, I don't know, for me in my books, it just means, like, having a, a, a range, you know, like, just being honest. Like, especially most of the books I write take place in New York. And, like, it, it's a joke if you just have one person of color in a book about New York, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, and, and, and so it's just, like, like there's lots of different kinds of us, and, and, and I think the characters... Being honest about that too with each other and having Mm -hmm. real conversations about what that means and the ways that we're played off, played off each other. Because kids are kids know that you know like if you Mm -hmm. talk to Puerto Ricans and Dominicans, they are very aware that they're being putted pitted against each other by white supremacy for the most part. Mm -hmm. And and they might not use the same exact language, but it's it's in it's part of their consciousness because we see what's up. And um, so I think it's just allowing them to have those conversations and be real about it is how I address it.
2: But also like being really respectful of, you know, if I'm if I'm, if someone approaches me and like, oh, can you write this project and it's set in East LA and it's a Chicana, I'm like, I'm not Chicana, right. I, I don't live in East LA, you know. But if I'm gonna approach any kind of project that is outside of what my experience lived experienced is, then I better research the hell out of it, <laughs> you know, and I better speak to the people who do, yeah. and I, you know, just to get it right because I feel, I, it's a responsibility, yeah. you know, and it's just, and it is, but it is. Just not just one voice. There's so many different voices and stories that I'm excited that just seeing it coming in through the pipeline, like they're coming out like to me, that's like, we're like in a really special time right now yeah. in publishing that we're getting to see. It's not enough, right. but it's a little trickle of, of more voices being, you know being represented in the publishing world yeah.
1: hmm. Lily, you uh, well, a question about formal writing training. Uh, Daniel Jose mentioned that, you know, for a decade he almost died and, uh, repeatedly, <laughs> that, yeah. sometimes for men who are hearts broken, <laughs> we raced across the city to come, um, uh, and we would blog at night. Formal training for you, Lilian.
2: Oh, I um, I did what um, anyone who's you know who could do. The I just went to a uh, a writers program at a university that was not you know that wasn't like university based. It was like a, um, a UCLA Extension Writers Program, which I teach now sometimes. But it was great because it was like after hours. You know, I would work full time and then I would take this class and I would be forced a deadline. You know, and I would have to submit a story or a novel or what have you. And that to me is the biggest thing is just forced to have a deadline and then you work on it every single day and then a novel which is, seems like a, like a huge insurmountable like, task becomes really easy or you know able to like reach if you like cut it down into certain little things like if I could write for an hour or two a day or if I could write 500 words a day if I do that every day then eventually I'm going to have something mm. you know tangible so um, that was the way I wrote mm. I, someone has said something about like every every choice or something that you've, you make is political. Like everything that you write is political, even if you're not writing a specific culture or a specific race, that's a, a political choice you're making at that moment. So uh, every book out there is um, a political weapon mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in a way.
1: Plenty of divisiveness and distractions to keep you away from your writing. What do you do when... You know, life throws a distraction at you, and you're you're working on something, and you might even have a deadline. Daniel right. Jose Older. Like yes, right I definitely have a deadline. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh, I'm Just cracking
3: up because you have a game show host voice. <laughs> oh, and thank it's, you. <laughs> it's great. It's really great. Thanks. You should
0: host a game show. But right it's now. great
3: because we're having like a really great conversation about writing. But you're like, and now, <laughs> and now, Daniel <laughs> and Jose Older, tell what us a little bit do? more
1: about how you maintain your focus on writing? writing in the age of Trump.
3: <laughs> how do you survive? <laughs> it's awesome. I aspire. I <laughs> um, but anyway, your question, which is a great one. Um, it's hard because, the, and back to the social media thing, which I totally agree yes. with everything you said, and it's overwhelming, right? Yeah. And, yeah. like, I'm a news junkie. I was raised in a mm. very political household, by which I mean, like, political nerds, like, not even, like, activists on the street, <laughs> but, like, my mom, it, like, raised me to be obsessed with Watergate at oh, age wow. 13. Wow. Yeah, I know. I wow. was like, oh, God. Just read <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, wow, 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 like it's
3: like I remember going to like the library and looking up microfiche of like the Watergate hearings for fun.
0: Wow, oh my um, God.
3: wow. Um, so that, to give you an idea, so it's very hard for me to disconnect <laughs> from stuff because and and my mom and I are still like that. We call each other That's all awesome. the time when stuff goes down, but. In the age of Trump, that's also a very traumatizing way to be alive mm-hmm. because your safety mm-hmm. is constantly a threat. You know, yes. like it's it's and that's always true, but it's much more true now. Yeah. You know, and so it's been intense. And um, I will say that I think we've been having this conversation. That most of the writers I know um, have been having this conversation for our whole careers, you know, and now, like, it's in the forefront of of the news, and everybody's talking about it, and I'll be honest, there's a little piece of me that's like, I told you all so you know what Mm -hmm. I mean, like, Mm -hmm. we've been saying it, like, Mm -hmm. this is really bad, and and we have a lot of work to do, and it's not just like, let's just hope it all goes away, and it's not just like, oh, America was founded on freedom, and all these other lies we tell ourselves, Um, we can't tell ourselves lies, because this is exactly what happens when we do, Mm -hmm. so... um, the challenge is getting past that I told you so moment and still getting the work done and not feeling bitter about it and, and, and you know, being uplifted. And, and that is a challenge. And I think it's a challenge that requires us to enter into working and creating with a lot of um, intentionality mm-hmm. about not bringing bitterness to the table, but also not sugarcoating. Because readers, and especially teenagers, will see right through that immediately. Yeah. Which is good, because bad books are created when we both... <laughs> um, and so, you know, it's like... It, basically, I think it comes down to self-care and knowing when to step away. Yes. And, and take a break and come back to it, you know, whole again.
2: I, yeah, totally. It's learning how to step away and also finding joy. <laughs> because I feel like um, sometimes it's always about anger. And I think uh, someone interviewed me the, the other day and they were like, oh, do you, how are you coping? And I'm like, "This is, this is this rage has been going on way before whoever is in the White House. Like, this is not just all of a sudden. So to me, it really is about finding joy. And uh, the only way I find joy is when I talk to young people. Like, it really, it brings me right back to like, oh, okay, yes, there's hope. They're hopeful. I'm hopeful too. So uh, I think that's that's the key. The key is self-care and finding joy.
0: You are listening to a session from the 2019 Tucson Festival of Books, Curated by Pima County Public Library's Nuestras Raices program entitled, What Color is the Future? Award-winning Latinx sci-fi fantasy writers Lillian Rivera and Danielle Jose Older discuss their work with librarian John Munoz.
1: You've got a question. Now's the time to ask. I have a gentleman straight away.
3: (laughs) He said uh, he was curious without putting us on the spot about why we would use the term... (laughs) <laughs> I appreciate it. Uh, why would you use the term political weapon as opposed to political statement?
2: It's oh. a good question. Um, I don't know. I was thinking about I know this is maybe a little too much of a tangent but I was thinking about clothes and what I was going to wear today hmm. and what I wear is usually my weapon. <laughs> like it's the way I enter a room. It's the way I deal with things, you know. And if I feel like I look good then I'm going to go in even though I'm really nervous and I'm I've never been to Tucson, you know, this festival before. I don't know what to expect. I'm nervous. Yeah. So I'm going to go in. I'm going to look cute. And that's my weapon.
0: That's real. That's, that's real. my
2: weapon.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to that. I, I would ju- I would say, yes, I co on that. And um, for me, I think it's a time when, you know, stories are very weaponized right now. Always are, really. You know, and I think we it's very easy as writers to talk about, like, stories change the world, and it's so beautiful, and the storytellers mm. are the saviors. And, like, mm. that's true. Stories change the world. But that also goes both ways. You know, that's for better mm-hmm. and for worse. And what we've lived through, all of us in this um, tent, have lived through, most of us, a time when, um stories were not here to tell us about our humanity um but to tell us about how we were bad guys or jokes or didn't even deserve to exist in stories right mm. that's a very clear message that stories have sent to us for a long time that we don't really have value and that our mm. stories don't matter wait so that being true you know stories have been used as weapons um self-defense sometimes and offensive other times, right? Mm. And I I think it's important to to frame the conversation that way because it comes from a place of valuing stories above all else, right? Like I love story more than anything. Like Mm. that's what changes the world and I believe in it. That's why I do it and that's why I have to be responsible as I create because I know the weaponry that I use and I have to understand it as such. Otherwise I will create very irresponsible representations and I'll hurt people Mm. and that's the one thing I don't want to do because I know what it feels like to be hurt by the stories that that I love.
1: So is the concept of fake news uh, um, (laughs) a form of weaponized storytelling? Yes, that's
3: exactly what that is.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So on average, how many hours per day do you dedicate Uh, to your craft? Oh, God. Um, You have a lot of things going on, I'm sure, in your day, and research as well. But I mean actually putting words on, um, well, I guess, digitizing words into the ether.
2: I mean, I take it, I do it... uh, at least maybe two hours a day consistently every day, but that's those two hours could be broken up, and those two hours could be in a car right. waiting for someone to get out of something, or those two hours you know, it could just it like right? It's like I steal time, like I steal right. like moments to, for me to write. Um, right. I could write on my phone because maybe that's all I got right there at that moment, but I like to travel a lot with my laptop. Mm. Um, it's time is so limited, limited that you right. don't. You know, there was moments where it would be nice if I had an office. It would be nice (laughs) if I had like, you know, I could do it at this hour to this hour. No. Sometimes it's like you are like street gorilla, like just writing wherever you can. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Same. I don't (laughs) like to write when I'm traveling, but certain times like right now, um, I will write on the plane, write in the hotel room. Mm -hmm. I just came from writing. I'm going to go back to writing after this because Mm -hmm. I'm on a tight deadline. Um, But I will say that I don't write every single day for sure. You don't write every day, right?
2: No. I mean, haven't, not unless I'm on a deadline. No, none of right? us do.
3: Right. Yeah. and yeah, if It's a tight deadline. That's a different scenario. But generally, yeah, my routine is wake up, walk the dogs, eat breakfast, and write. And and it'll, you know, be a couple of hours maybe. And then I tend to, I used to, mostly I guess I go by word counts. Um, less than, like, time in the chair because there'll be times when I will sit there for hours and not write, you know, and like yeah. nothing will get done. So I need the word count thing to keep me accountable if I'm in a position where I really need to make sure that I'm getting the work done and I'll try to throw down a thousand or Two thousand words a day.
2: So, it, so that's what your goal is usually—is a thousand the, or two thousand? Yeah,
3: between a thousand and two thousand. Now, having said that, like the, right now, I'm in a period with this book where I know I'm good on the word count, so I just need to push forward. Mm-hmm. You know, so it depends where I'm at with each book.
2: Yeah, I could write wherever. Yeah. So, look, I could write with my kid asking me for something. What are you saying? Uh huh. Right. Yes.
3: Right. I'm yes. writing because
2: I, I I don't have time. Exactly.
3: We just got a third puppy. <laughs> And so that, they don't let me stay upstairs long. They will all come and get me like, as a crew and be like, hello, daddy, what's good? And I'm like, I'm, what's good is I'm in my office like paying for your dog food. That's what's good. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, but well, we, the couch is so comfortable. So I had to learn to not always write in my office because, because of dogs. <laughs>
1: You both teach, right? Yeah, yeah, Yes, of course. So, marginalized students who are trying to get their voice heard, and perhaps there's reluctance and ex- uh, in accepting these stories that they're trying to create. Oh, they've mm-hmm. internalized them. Okay. that's mm-hmm. a really good question. Hmm, Lillian. I, yeah. Go ahead. No. Yeah, Lillian. No, no, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> Say something smart so I can
0: agree.
2: I mean, no pressure. Oh, man. I mean, I've had students come up to me afterwards and and, com- and share, like, Really get emotional about it, like, because when I go, I don't know if you do this, Daniel, but uh, for my syllabus, like, I'm making sure that I'm putting only mostly uh, people of color, their works, you know, I, and I'm just letting them, you know, hear voices that uh, maybe you, you're not aware of, and you should be reading this, and you should be reading this and this. Um, but I've had this one girl come up to me after after class, and and she was was just crying, like she was just like this. I've never had a class. Like this, like mm. I've never had anyone t- give me the the permission to like you know to write the story I want to write, you know. Yeah. Um, and I'm hoping that that's what I'm doing for all you know for all my writers. Is right. just like explore what you want to write, you know, explore your own truth.
3: Right. Uh, for me, I think I really believe in preemptive um, handling of oppression um, because I think in the classroom, especially, a lot of the for like time memorial, the strategy has always been like. Sure, it might come up and we'll deal with it when it does, you know what I mean? And then people get traumatized from that very, mm-hmm. very clearly. Um, which isn't to say that like dealing with it up front means it won't happen. But I do think you can create in your in your classroom a, a place that's very intentionally safe for the people that don't usually feel safe in classrooms and so that when it does come up you have a common language to deal with whatever, you know, has dropped. And so, you know, and, and to me it also makes sense because um, writing and talking about you know, race and gender and things, like that's a very important writer skill to have, no matter who you are. Like, you, you need it. When you're going through the publishing experience, you need to be able to talk about stuff, whether it's because of how the cover came out or mm. marketing mm. stuff or the book itself and the editorial comments it's always going to be a part of the process so the more that you can create an atmosphere where students are able to openly deal with that and have a real conversation about power Mm -hmm. and not like you know the fake conversation about power or just not talk about it at all which is usually what happens in writing classes because we don't make time for it the better i think a service you're doing for your students um and then the the but the when it comes to the actual like peeping it where it happens piece like we do we do you always see it you know it's always there because we've been trained in a very particular way and i think it's a really hard conversation to have but a really healthy one if you can get it together to have it and obviously you're going to have it differently you know coming from where you come from than we would but it's still important to have right and like it can be challenging um but i think the most that the most thing i see is like the idea of the white gaze is very built in and and it comes across in stories in very particular ways, um, similar with the male gaze. And you don't have to be of that of that you know personage to do it. You know we're all very aware of it because it's breathing down our neck everywhere we go, right? Because it's publishing, um, and that's so that's a reality. And I think that's where you want to look is like is this is this writer writing for you know their friends and family or are they writing for a, a larger white audience that. And maybe that's okay, but you want to have an awareness of that to have that conversation like why is that happening is it happening because that's the only way they think they'll, they'll get published and their stories matter probably you know and then like what's the what does the work look like if they don't write for the white gays that's a huge question to ask a student and it can be very transformative if you do ask mm-hmm.
1: Daniel thank Jose you. Older Lillian Rivera thank you so very thank much you. for thank sharing you. with us this great. afternoon
0: you've been listening to award winning Latinx sci-fi fantasy writers Lillian Rivera and Danielle Jose Older with moderator John Munoz from a panel called What Color Is the Future? This has been part two of a two-part series. This session was from the 2019 Tucson Festival of Books curated by Pima County Public Library's Nuestros Rices Program. Thank you for listening to 30 Minutes from 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. You can find this and all recent episodes of 30 Minutes on the 30 Minutes program page at kxci.org. You can also subscribe to the podcast at Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. And quiet as it's kept, there's also a 30 Minutes Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.